What we're going to do is the second part now of consuming. I only got to the first part. I didn't get to the second part because, of course, we know that the timing we have now is much shorter than we have in the church. And so we're going to get to the second part. But I do see some new faces, so we're going to do a little recap very quickly. And then we'll spend the majority of our time doing the second half. What I need to do. I need names. So, uh, what we talked about before, I'm not going to go into the details, because you can just go ahead and listen to the talk, the audio, uh, whenever it goes online. So I'm just going to really talk about four responses that Christ did during his dialogue. Now, a little big bit of uh, background with uh, narrative. Uh, this dialogue is occurring the day after Christ feeds the 5,000, which was read twice in the last month with the Gospel readings. So after he feeds the 5,000, they come looking for him to get more food. But of course, they're trying to get food of the body, right? The actual bread. And when they find him, Christ corrects their intentions by teaching them about who he is rather than what they are seeking, the bread of life. And he goes into detail. In fact, he spends about a chapter and a half going over this sacrament of, of, the, of the divine Eucharist. Okay? And the way he does it, he does it very gently and very gradually. And what he wants to do is he wants them to transition their minds to a complete transformative state of his mysterious sacrament of divine Eucharist. And he's trying to explain to them that the bread and wine that feeds the body is very limited. What I'm trying to explain to you is my true nature. Right? He's trying to explain to them the body and blood, the divine Eucharist that feeds the soul, the everlasting life. And so, uh, the first one I want to go over... Is this part right here, where it says, And the bread that I shall give is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And this term, for the world, you're going to see this come up multiple times. That, that it's beyond just one, it's for all of humanity. So when Christ states this, that changes everything. The whole concept of what we believe is completely transformative. He is now instituting the holy mystery of the sacrament of the divine Eucharist. And how did he give it to the entire world? Through the church. What we did today is what all the churches do every Sunday. That is how he will what? Give his flesh to the life of the world. The question is, why does he spend so much time for us to understand these mysteries of the sacrament? He spent so much time for us to understand this. Because he understands that faith must come before understanding. That we have to have the faith before we can understand. Yet we are beings that are backwards. We like to think, right? We're intelligent creatures, way beyond the rest of the animal kingdom. And so we want to think before we can feel it. But Christ is saying, no, 
That's not how it works. The spirit must come first. You must feel it in your heart, and then you can understand it. But you have to believe it first. Because if there's no faith, then everything thereafter is not going to mean anything. So the faith must come before the understanding. And we see this three times. The first one we see it is he does the miracle before the preaching. Why does he, he do the miracle of feeding the 5,000? And it's very blatant, it's very obvious, it's very outward. Because he's trying to increase their faith. Look what I can do. He makes it very obvious that he is the Son of God. And then on the next day when they come and see him, then he's trying to say, now that you saw what I can do, now I want you to understand what it means. I want to explain to you what this bread of life does mean. That the, 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 the food that I gave you, the bread that I gave you, that's temporary. Now I'm talking about me. And it's a very radical idea. From that bread that I, that I distributed to now my flesh. That wine to now my blood. And then he says it up here in the very first line. Whoops, sorry. I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He uses the term belief before he explains who he is. The faith has to come first. And then we read it in James 1. Very clearly it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. So the faith has to come before the wisdom, understanding, knowledge, intellect. None of these will make any sense in the spiritual realm of his mysteries. To understand the mysteries, the faith has to be first. Again, I'm not going to go into details. Because um, you can uh, listen to the details on, on the first part of this talk. But for right now, I'm just going to go over a few points. Uh, the next one I want to go over is at the end, where it starts with, um, therefore, just this part right here. It says, uh, therefore, many of its disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? And this is what we're trying to talk about. This explains why Christ talks in parables. Right? And every time it deals with the sacrament of salvific goal, when it has to do with our salvation, which are four of the seven, he always takes his time with it. We see this in John 3 when he talks to Nicodemus about the sacrament of baptism. Nicodemus... Right? As we can see here, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, a Supreme Council. So it's like, in today's world, that would be on the Supreme Court justice. Okay? He's very intellectual. He's an amazing scholar, and yet he can't understand this. He even says to Christ, do you want me to go back into my mother's womb and be reborn again? And then what does Christ say in John 3? He says, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? If I have told you these earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? This takes time. It takes faith, a great amount of faith. And it reminds us that we need to be patient with others. We need to understand that it's hard to digest this. 
It has to be given in very small, bite-sized pieces, right? We're infants of this knowledge. We know very little. And then it goes on and says, right here, I'm right here, when Jesus knew in, his, knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So what are we seeing with the disciples here? The same thing as we saw with the crowd, the multitudes of the Jewish nation. We are all of one nation. We are of humanity. We are the human nation. Even his disciples, I was with him for several years now, they still don't understand this. And that's okay. God understands this. He knows that. That here we have two crowds that still are murmuring. They're still quarreling. They, 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 they don't understand what he's saying. They're still questioning because they're human. And he still says something. He says what? Does this offend you? And he doesn't stop there. He does something else. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Many left at this point. Then Jesus said to the twelve, this is new now, the recap stuff. Do you also want to go away? Do you also want to leave? So if you are offended, there's the front door. God makes it very clear, this is what you must do. This is what must happen. Why? Because it's how much he loves us. It's how much he has concern for his disciples that he says, if you want to be with me, if you want to read salvation, here is what is needed. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. There is no gray here. The sacraments are a must. And we see this in Revelation 3 with the lukewarm church. He says, I know your works that, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were either cold or hot. I will vomit you out of my mouth. That's what he thinks about lukewarm. I will vomit you out. You are either with me or you're against me. There's no middle ground here. And I want to remind you, these are his beloved disciples, his brothers. Right? These are his followers. The ones that are probably most loyal to him. And yet, he's very firm. He's very clear with the, with the, with the command. And then we see this beautiful response from who else? Right? Simon Peter. And we're going to notice in the scripture, and this is a really beautiful thing, is that whenever Christ needs someone to defend him, it's always the one you least expect. It's not his Jewish uh, chosen elect nation. It's not the Israelites. It's always a Gentile. When he was up on the cross, who came to offend Christ? The Israelites were mocking him. Come off this cross. They were spitting. They were, they were slapping him, putting on the crown, mocking him, hitting him with the rod. Physically abusing him, whipping him. But then what does the right thief say? Something that we proclaim every Great Friday. 
Remember us when you come into your kingdom. That's amazing. The right thief is defending Christ. At his most vulnerable state. It's not the Israelites, it's not the Gentile. I mean, it's, it's not the Jewish nation. It's the Gentile. The one that was a murderer, a thief, lives his life with sin. But then he gave God his heart. And that's what it's about. It's about the faith. It's about the belief. And then Simon Peter, uh, this is the second time he responds in such a very uh, robust way. And that's what I love about St. Peter. That even though he's extremely impulsive, he's extremely loyal. Uh, remember in, in Matthew 16, Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Says, who do men say that I am? Some say St. John the Baptist, some say Jeremiah, some say Elijah. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And who comes to the forefront? Simon Peter once again. He says what? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he said, blessed are you, Simon, for, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven revealed this to you. And he said, also, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And then, what does he say here? When Christ asks, he comes again. He says, you, where are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. Like, honestly, what else are we going to do? You're everything to us. You are life. You are the bread of life. You are everything. Now what I want us to do is I want us to um, redirect ourselves to the original Passover. As we go, come into Lent, I want us to go to the original Passover and you will see when, I, when we talk about what, uh, are the sacraments hard to understand? Not anymore. Once we understand the scriptures. Because he says it what? He's been saying it since the beginning. Literally, from Genesis to Revelation, he's been trying to tell us the same message over and over and over again. So we're going to read the very first Passover in Exodus. And you're going to see a lot of beautiful similarities between the Old and the New Testament. It's absolutely incredible. And I'm not going to be able to cover it all. It's just too much. So I'm going to just cover uh, two of the four uh, highlighted areas. So I'm only going to be covering the blue and the red. I will not cover the green and the purple. They take too long. So we'll just cover the blue and the red highlights. So... Um, it says, this month shall be your beginning of months, and it shall be the first month of the year to you. You notice that he's talking about the beginning. He gives a timeline. He gives a, a, a stamp, a, a, a time stamp, right? And we see in the cosmos, we see order, right? We, we, we don't see chaos. We see mathematics. We see chemistry. 
that tells us that our God is a very organized God, a very intellectual God, a very logical God. Because if he created this thing, the creator must be greater than that. So where do we see the beginning of months in scripture? In fact, if you just type in the first month, it, it appears 50 times just in the Old Testament. And he's telling us something. Every time he uses the first of the day or the first of the month, it is what? It's something amazing. God is with you. That God is recreating for you. We see it in Genesis 1.1, the creation event. What are the first three words of scripture? In the beginning. Beginning of what? Creation. Time. And then what do we do? We come in and what do we do? We muck it up. We bring corruption. We bring sin. And then what does God do? It's what? It's all he knows how to do. Recreate. And so we see in Genesis 8.13, because of the wickedness of man, what does he do with all of humanity? Wipes them out. And then on Genesis 8.13 in Noah's Ark, after the flood uh, uh, recedes, he says, and it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So what do we see here? Every time we fall, he brings life. Every time we sin, he recreates. That's, that's who he is. He can't, he can't deny his nature. He creates, we mess it up, he recreates. We mess up, he recreates over and over again. Because he's life. It's what he does. We also read in Exodus 40, when the, the raising of the tabernacle, first day of the first month. Numbers 9, the second Passover in the wilderness. We see it in Revelation. So we see from Genesis all the way to Revelations, the same thing. It says in uh, Revelation 21.5, Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. So we see this common reoccurring theme that Christ makes everything new. Prime example, uh, John 1.1 1, 1 was the first three words. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. St. John uh, purposely stated in the beginning to refer back to Genesis 1 from the beginning. Because what? Genesis in the beginning of creation is of the Old Testament. But the Gospels are the beginning of the new creation in Christ. Salvation is at hand in the New Testament. Of all the things we have messed up, Christ brings it back. He puts it upon himself to fix it. Now something even to me more beautiful, it's my favorite part, is the lamb in red. And I, come, I came across this when I was reading this, I didn't even realize it. But every time lamb is written, 
It's showing his sacrifice to a different group of people. It's amazing. It's beautiful. So let's go over these five names very quickly. I'll go quickly. So the first one, it says what? According to the house of his father. That's Christ sacrificing for the father. Complete obedience. Let this cup pass before me, but not as I will, but as you will. Let it be according to your will. Complete obedience. The second lamb, sacrifice to the family. That we are to follow in Christ's footsteps and sacrifice for our family out of obedience and love. And then the third sacrifice. So lamb is to the household, family. Third lamb to the neighbors. To your neighbors. What are the two greatest commandments ever? The first one, to love your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That's from Mark 12. And then, goes a step further. In the fourth lamb, sacrifice to strangers. That's the church. That everyone is welcome who walks through these doors, who walks through these gates. But certainly I say to you, and as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And most of the time we're thinking the least of my brethren, that's someone I, I see on the street. No. The least of my brethren is the one that you can't stand to be near. It's your enemy. Because your enemy is your neighbor. Because guess what? Those enemies are still the children of God. They're still the child of God. So even what? Even tax collectors eat with tax collectors. Even sinners eat with sinners. There's no difference. So when we're talking about neighbors, we are including even those that in our heart we are not completely in tune with. That we, we have not built that bridge. So we're even talking about our enemies. And it says, you have heard that, that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your father in heaven. And then the fifth lamb. Fifth lamb is amazing. The fifth lamb is now that he died for you. It says, your lamb that should, should be without blemish, a male of the first year. I, I cried when I read this because I realized something amazing. The creator of heaven and earth, of the cosmos, of everything that he built, he took the time to come here and die for you personally. That this perfect like Lamb of God died for every single one of us. It's just, I, I can't fathom it. It's beyond my comprehension. The creator of everything comes down here, humbles himself, and has the most excruciating, right? That's crucifixion. Pain ever imaginable to absolve your sins. It's, it's amazing. There's nothing like that. There's no other faith that has that. 
And then it says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's God. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our 10th year anniversary. Congratulations uh, to the St. Paul family because this ties in beautifully to the theme today. I didn't mean for this to happen, but it kind of just fell in naturally. And so I was reminded of the St. Paul mission by Aquilos. And here's what it reads. Here's the mission of St. Paul. And look how much it ties into this. To be an open, multicultural community where people of all ethnic backgrounds who join our church can feel welcome and at home, which is rooted in the living tradition of our holy Orthodox Church, which is the body of Christ and all her members are a new creation in Christ. New creation. And this, what? Works perfectly with St. Paul himself, what he says in Colossians. Since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. And then this is the most beautiful part right here. It says, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, slave nor free, but Christian is all and in all. And sometimes we lose focus on this life. Just like we see in the war. We lose focus on who's our brothers. We lose focus on who is our enemies. There is no enemies. We are all the children of God. And so we hear this devastating thing with brother against brother, orthodox country against orthodox country. It doesn't make any sense. Very appalling. It's, it's very sad. It's very depressing. Because we lose focus on why are we here. And so Christ makes everything new and that the Lamb of God is for everyone. This is why St. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not of one country, not of one person, but of the entire world, of humanity. And this is what we have to focus on. So in the next couple of slides, we're almost done. Um, what I did is I put the Old with the New Testament. I want us to really look at the similarity between the Old and New Testament Passover, and you'll see how amazing it is. But when you see it, you're going to notice I have a lot of underlines. Those underlines have great significance because they have an amazing amount of symbolism and meaning by the, by the early church fathers. I can't go over all of these, but there's a reason why, and I'm sure most of these we already know, like the blood, the doorposts, we know that. But why at night? Why roasted in fire? Why unleavened bread? Why bitter herbs? It's all about the passion. It's amazing. But the one I want to kind of give you like a little glimpse or a little taste is the last three. These three that you are cooking with fire and eating all together and consuming, it's amazing. The church fathers say that the head, which is closest to heaven, is the divine mind of God. Right? So it's the divinity of Christ. The legs that Christ walked with, that's Christ's humanity. And the entrails, which is inside of Christ, 
That's the mystery of the sacraments. That's the church. Pretty amazing. And then you see on the other side, and you see such paradox. Look at the irony here. It says, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's right under their noses. It's the same ritual and tradition they have been doing every single year since the beginning, and they don't even see it. We as Gentiles completely understand this. We see it. But look, they understood the scriptures. They understood the prophecies. But they couldn't get it because they were so fixated on the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. Because it's literally word to word. It's like, it, it, it's almost plagiarizing. It's amazing. And then it goes on, and guess what? It continues the same thing. It's the same stuff. And I'll give you a, another um, amazing parallel. When it says, and this is how you said eat the Passover, with a bell on your waist. What does the waist mean? And this is just known among the church fathers. It means truth. And who is the way, the truth, and the life? Christ himself. So when he girded his waist with a towel to wash the disciples' feet, when he humbled himself, becoming as a slave, that's what the waist means. And then it says, your sandals are on your feet. Peace. The feet means peace. So he is the prince of peace coming on a donkey, riding on a donkey to Jerusalem. And then the staff in your hand, that's faith. That's the strength of God's faith. And that's what Moses used to what? Split the sea. Because he has such great faith. All right, I'm going to kind of finish up here because I think I'm running out of time. Uh, that's, I was wondering why everybody's giggling and smiling. I forgot. Not even paying attention. I, I'm a teacher, so I see this all the time. I'm not paying attention. Um, so this part I want to read, and I want you to look at how beautiful that the foreshadowing is here. It says, so this day shall be to you a memorial, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Throughout your generations, you shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Yet this is where? This is Exodus. This is the Old Testament. What is he foreshadowing? The New Testament that we are going to keep this ritual and tradition of the Passover forever, everlasting. It's amazing. And then what do we read every Sunday? And we don't need to read this. We're reminded when this is read to us, hymn to us every Sunday. And this is the importance of attending weekly divine liturgy, to remember, to remember the Passover. Uh, uh, during Holy Week, there are two days, and you're going to see this faith and understanding repeated over and over again. You'll see it when you read the when you read the prophecies. But on, co on uh, Covenant Thursday, what does Christ do? He washes the disciples' feet, and he has the Last Supper. He's trying to get in as much as he can before he has to leave them. This is the last time, and he's trying to give them as much faith as possible. And then what happens on Great Friday? Do you understand now? So the Last Supper becomes a sacrificial supper. The faith turns into understanding. Okay, last slide. I think they're coming in. This is the last slide. What? 
So I'm not going to read this. You guys can read this to yourself. But I'm going to conclude uh, with this quote. And then I'm done. Two more minutes. We are all called... Oh, this is... Uh, sorry, this is a quote from St. Augustine. We are all God's beggars when we pray. We stand in front of the great householder's gate. We prostrate ourselves. We whine. We implore, wanting to receive something. And that something is God himself. As beggars before God, we ask for what all beggars seek to receive. Bread. We are scattered grains that are brought together in the one heavenly bread of Christ, which he calls his flesh. So we are reminded of our St. Paul family mission that whoever walks through those gates, whoever walks through these doors, they are all seeking what we are all seeking, and that is the bread of life. So as poor beggars, the only way we can respond to that is yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. And glory be to God forever and ever. Um, any uh, questions? Sorry if I took too long, I apologize. I tried to go as fast as I can. I left a lot of things out. Uh, any questions, concerns, comments? All right, let's stand up for prayer. Uh, we have two abundance and an RT, not one of them's here. Huh? All right. Name the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Uh, through the intercessions of ever-Virgin Theotokos, Mother of God, St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. John the Baptist, St. John the Beloved, St. Peter, St. Paul, and all your prophets and saints who have faced you since the beginning, here are great with all thanksgiving, our Father, who art in heaven, and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and God. Thank you.
was that, uh, what's that guy? No, was it Just wait up there by the way. Oh. 